You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Hi, everybody. Hi, Hi Dr. Dr. Nick. Nick. Yes. Hello, everybody. It's Dr. Nick here, and welcome to Radiotherapy. And I'm delighted to have your company here on Triple R, Triple R, between now and 11 o'clock. And helping keep me company here in the studio, uh, we have a, a wise old man's head on a very youthful looking body of the psychiatrist, Dr. Malice. Good morning, Malice. Hello, hello, hello. What a morning after it is. <laughs> yes, we'll be coming to the morning after. <laughs> I'm just impressed that you're here at all. Well done. Um, and sitting slightly uncomfortably next to Malice, we have our medical student misdiagnosis. Good morning. Good morning to you, Dr. Nick. You're looking just a, a trifle awkward in the chair there. What's going on? Oh, well, look, I'm on my surgical placement at the moment and I thought, what better way to experience <laughs> surgery than to have it done on yourself? So I'm, I'm a couple of days post-surgery. I had knee surgery on Wednesday. Well, we look forward to hearing a bit more about that. Could, could I ask, is this altruism in medical education or did you actually need the surgery uh, i did actually need oh, the surgery good, good. yeah it wasn't it. purely altruistic <laughs> but you know they always say the best way to sort of get to know patients is to be one yourself yes i i always thought that's sort of a um a lip service when it gets to the point of surgical intervention yeah. <laughs> you don't actually go there and for us as boys uh we had a little bit of trouble with the obstetrics uh, rotation how do you actually get to feel the sort of pain of pregnancy and the discomfort and the joys kidney stones <laughs> what? Oh, well said. Well oh, said. that's what we should. All right. It's often yes. It's often yes. said that the pain of a kidney stone is the only time a man will know what it's like to have a baby. I mean, right. I think those kind of those statements are it's so silly. I mean, surely it's incredibly different for both of those different things. And you know, you've got an entire you're making a person when you're having a baby. You just at the end of the day with a kidney stone, you get a kidney stone. It's, it's a we, very different process. We just <laughs> want to be involved somehow. Yes. Yes. <laughs> now we were going to have in the studio as well. We were and have Lolly Doc, but poor old Lolly, one of his children, is really unwell. Uh, got the gastro, the nausea, and vomiting. So, Lolly, we hope things are okay at home and look forward to a full recovery soon. Uh, now, later in the show, in the aftermath of the grand final, we'll be talking about winning and losing and why sometimes it's losing that can ultimately be the better outcome. And uh, in the light of the Brett Kavanaugh debacle in the USA, we'll be talking a bit about the complex and very controversial issue of sexual assault allegations. But first, we're going to have some news. Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case of loving you. No pills gonna cure my ill. I got a bad case of loving you. So just to think about news today one of the things that um, came up that i saw because we're always fascinated in vaccination immunization and the su success or otherwise thereof um, and i'm delighted to say that the victorian government uh, this year for the first time decided that they would subsidize flu vaccines for children and whether or not it's due to that we don't know for certain but what we do know is that the flu rates this year have been way way down on last year we've only had just about five thousand cases in victoria this year compared to to nearly 35,000 cases at this time last year. So whether that's due to all the kids getting vaccinated or just annual variation, who knows? But it's, uh, it's certainly possibly the fact that we've covered more people. 
I, I would have thought that that should be argued through and the statistics are given as proof or evidence if it is indeed the vaccinations of efficacy because it makes a very powerful argument for vaccination. Uh, you know, that sort of 35,000 to 5,000 within one year, you'd have to explain and it's a massive, mm. massive yes. cost saving, even yes. if you don't worry about the health side of things. Yes. The cost effectiveness of this kind of vaccination program is overwhelmingly good. And also the public education, the stigma for some people around vaccination, that it's an invasion of privacy and so on, where there's evidence that's really solid, I think that would be really good promotion. I absolutely agree with you because, I mean, the science has been in for a very long time that, in a general sense, vaccination is enormously effective and nothing is 100% safe in medicine, of course, and we have had problems with vaccines. But if you look at the balance of Mm. harm versus benefit, Mm. it is overwhelmingly in favour of benefit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, misdiagnosis. Uh, <laughs> you're in the news today because we wanted to just think about a little bit about what was done to your knee and why. Yeah, so I, I guess uh, to introduce the news segment, so, uh, you know, I'll talk a little bit about what happened to me with this is that um, I developed something called iliotibial band friction syndrome or ITB syndrome, um, which is essentially an overuse uh, injury of. Um, of the iliotibial band, which is this sort of big band of something called fascia, which is, I guess, kind of just like a little bit of connective tissue-y stuff that runs from the outside of your hip and it runs across the outside of the knee joint. And what happens with this particular syndrome is that uh, either through, you know, sort of misuse or, or running or bad biomechanics and running, and maybe I have terrible biomechanics and running, I have no idea, um, it, it can end up rubbing over the side of the knee and causing inflammation and pain. Um, So it's called runner's knee as well, sort of colloquially, and there are lots of different reasons for people to get runner's knee, but one of them is this iliotibial band friction syndrome, um, which, and I think ITB syndrome accounts for about 22% of runner's knee. Um, But the interesting thing, I think, with with what happened to me is that I I took up running when I started medical school because that seemed like a good thing to do, you know, being healthy during medical school. And then, (laughs) of course, I ended up getting injured doing this running. Um, and I've had this knee pain for about two years now, which has stopped me. Ouch. It's sort of, you know, I can still walk and, you know, all sorts of those kind of things. But in terms of running itself, I could manage about seven minutes before it started getting really painful. Now, young, fit people, surely as just run through this stuff, a little bit of physio, a little bit of time, it all gets better. But why two years later, mm. still a problem? Yeah, see, that's what I thought. So, you know, I just, well, I stopped running and I started swimming and then I went back to running and thought, oh, well, I've done a bit of swimming now. Hopefully it'll, you know, everything will be calmed down and it'll all be fine. But... What actually happened with me is that the IT band itself physiologically changes. And because it's a sheath of fascia, it's not a muscle. You can't stretch it. You can't change it. It just is. So this big sort of, this big sheath of fascia became indurated and rolled at the edge across my, um, across the tibia. Well, indurated. I love that word. But explain in in, in (laughs) single syllables for us. (laughs) In single syllables. (laughs) rolled uh, sort of caught underneath a bit it it thickens that particular section which means that no amount of rest will change it because it's it's essentially an avascular structure meaning there is no blood supply to it so it doesn't it doesn't actually change 
that much. Mm-hmm. Now, the IT band itself is connected to a muscle and a lot of people can get relief through releasing that particular muscle. So, you know, it's it's connected Whoa. up to the tensor fascia lata muscle in the gluteus region. And, you know, you can do all sorts of things like glute strengthening bits and pieces and, you know, try to get sort of stronger in that way. And I actually went to see a physio and the physio said, oh, you know, your, your, your glute muscle's weak over here and you've got to do some of these leg raises and these kind of things. I did that for about a week and I thought, this is rubbish. My glutes aren't that weak at all, and I don't think this is going to make any difference. So that's when I went for a second opinion. So if I'm hearing you correctly, one of the reasons this is important is because there'll be a lot of people out there who enjoy running, jogging, that sort of thing, who maybe get some knee pain, who've maybe pushed on with physical therapies, time and that sort of stuff. Mm. But maybe there are things that need to be done for some of these pains which are more invasive or even surgical. We, we can't just rely on time, physio and more exercise. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, if you look at the chronicity of what happened with my knee, it, it's it's different. It's not, you know, I took some time off and it got better and I could run again and then it got a bit worse. Well, you might look at something like biomechanics of running. You might look at trying to strengthen some of the muscles. It really was a case of I gave it six months of no running whatsoever. I started running again and within five minutes I had the pain. And that to me made me think, I don't think this is a muscle imbalance because that doesn't make sense to me. And when I went to see a sports physician, I told her the story and I said, oh, well, you know, two years ago I... And she just sat there nodding, nodding, nodding. And at the end of it, she goes, you've 100% described iliotibial band friction syndrome. It will not get better with physio. You've got two options, surgery or steroid injections. Right. Oh. And do you had the surgery? Yeah. Well, she said the steroid injections were about 50% effective and the surgery is about 99% effective. Big call, 99%. Yes. <laughs> um, I think the other thing is she was she was quite convinced that my IT band was um, the tightest that she'd felt in a very, very long time. So with, with that kind of knowledge, I sort of thought, I don't think the steroid injections are going to do much. Isn't that the sort of thing you put on Facebook? I have the tightest IT band she's ever come across. <laughs> well, it's typical Taipei medical student. Like she said, I, you know, you've got the tightest IT band. I thought, oh, good, I've won it. Yes. <laughs> Just a question, I mean, having gone through the process, what is a layperson to do with their sore knee or elbow? You know, a tennis mm-hmm. elbow is also a very common thing. When does a, a layman, uh, layperson actually say it's time to get a second opinion? I mean, you've obviously gone through the medical knowledge you have, mm-hmm. the anatomy, you've given yourself a two-year trial period of various approaches. That's not everyday approach. Yeah. So what's the lesson that we could learn as laypeople? Well, I think, you know, at the end of the day, everyone needs to be responsible for their own health as much of their ability as they can. So if it doesn't make sense to you, that's when I would seek another opinion, whether that's from your GP going back and saying, I don't think this is working for me. And when I say take charge of their own health, I don't mean, you know, the doctors have no responsibility. I just mean, if it doesn't feel right, ask your doctor again. Ask someone else, say, you know, is it worth talking to someone else or getting a second opinion? And I would add to that, if I may, that uh, as a GP, I can do musculoskeletal medicine to some extent, but I am not an expert in that territory. Um, physiotherapists and other musculoskeletal therapists are much, much better at this stuff than I am. But there are sports physicians out there, and I refer a lot to sports physicians with these continuing injuries because there are sometimes things and your it band syndrome uh which i don't know what the next steps of management are which a sports physician will so my suggestion would be certainly if you're stuck with something like that Mm -hmm. don't hesitate to get a a sports physician to have a look now and that raises a really interesting question for the medical profession or the health profession where do we know our limits are 
and that's a really hard call because it, it brings our ego and our sort of self-esteem and a sense of competence all into question. And there needs to perhaps be just a touch humility that there are conditions that we haven't heard of, procedures that we weren't trained in when we were trained years ago, that are now accepted and acceptable with 99% success rate. So how do we, as a personality, let's say, and not just doctors, but all health professionals, the people in trust with their health, where do we sort of start to question our own limits? How do, how, what's the, the signalling that I'm really at the edge of my competence, I'm a competent person, but in this person's condition, I think I've reached the limit? And this is a quintessential question in primary care, in general practice, my area of so-called expertise, um, because it's uh, we cover everything in medicine yes. and all sorts of things that aren't even in medicine. And it's <laughs> we are particularly an area uh, an expertise mm. in uncertainty and for new gps that is really hard one of the advantages of getting older and crustier it is a bit easier to say i don't know but that's a very hard thing for new doctors to say we'll have to yes. cover that in more detail on another segment you're listening to a podcast from community radio 3 rrr in melbourne australia Oh, it was a big game yesterday. I loved watching that game. I'm one of those tragic footy non-tragics who's kind of tangentially interested, but even I really, really loved that game. Um, what did you think of it, Dr. Mel? Oh, it's a sort of a heart stopper, isn't it? Um, and that's what you want in a, a grand final. You want to showcase the best. And, you know, those runaway victories are great for the winners, terrible for the losers and awful for the viewers. So this really had everything going. To, you didn't know to the last two minutes what was going to go on. And of course, we're talking here in Melbourne about the Melbourne Australian Grand Final. There's only one of those a year. And it was between uh, Collingwood and uh, the Eagles from Perth. And there's a lot of partisanship and so on. Are you you're saying this in case anyone in the audience is unaware of what happened just, yesterday? Just in case there might. Be because we had uh, the Collingwood had it, 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 the, it, the um, Collingwood team actually had one of its star players Cox uh, as a recruit from the U.S. basketball team, a seven footer uh, who plays basketball and now is after three years one of the stars of the game in Australian league. So we are getting an international flavour for it. And I just liked, as an aside, his comment when he was asked, do you ever get sledged? And he goes, oh, what do you reckon with my looks? Uh, he was talking not about his appearance, but his height. And so they said, well, what's, what's the sledging you're getting? And he says the most common funny one, as many said, I can't actually repeat the words because they're a bit off. But the most uh, accessible one was, who brought the baby giraffe onto the field? Oh, he's nearly off, seven off, foot. Off. Yeah. <laughs> now, just on a light note, uh, I heard the best uh, grand final story of this uh, late middle-aged man who was at the game yesterday with an empty seat next to him. And the person on his side tapped him on his shoulders. He says, mate, what's going on? You've got an empty seat next to you. He goes, yeah, I know. For 30 years, my wife and I never missed a grand final. And now she's gone. You know, he sort of lowered his voice and head. And the guy said, oh, look, I'm really sorry, but, you know, maybe other family members or friends, couldn't you have invited them? He goes, yeah, could have, but they're all at her funeral today. <laughs> so, you know, it's one of those events that you really uh, have to reevaluate life, which is more important on the given day. 
And one of the things that was happening yesterday while I was watching it was even I was watching it with diehard Eagle supporters. They were saying, isn't it a pity that someone has to lose? Yes. Now, that is really the gut feeling and sentiment throughout the world that, you know, there's winners and then there's, oh, well, the losers who don't get any prizes. Although in some schools now there's a tendency to give prizes to everyone just for participating to, I guess, soften the blow of what's called the loser's gut-wrenching, awful, empty feeling. And here we are the morning after. So all the winners, congratulations. It's a thrilling triumph for you. But now let's spare a thought to the losers. And I had a a friend and colleague, Kelly Chipperfield, who kindly gave me a contact of a man who's a real go-to person if you want to know about losing in sport. Not because he is a loser. He's actually a brilliant winner. He's the chair of the College of Sports and Exercise Physiology of the Australian Psychological Society and very kindly gave me a, a, a long chat on Friday as an expert in the field that, oh, by golly, does he know his stuff. And he gave me about five major points that uh, the, the errors I'll claim as my responsibility, the good points are his, uh, about how to manage suffering and adversity, which really, if you look at it, that's what losing is. It's a, it's a real adverse event in the life of sports people, but not just the players. Let's not forget the coaches, the managers, and if you're playing in under 18 or junior, the parents, they also have to cope with the sort of fallout, let's say, and not just necessarily for the morning after. It could go on for quite a few days, if not weeks. And in the upper league, where you've got million-dollar contracts with media and sponsors, winning or losing has a lot of consequence for your income, lifestyle, and much more than self-esteem. Perhaps not much more, but in addition to. So my question to him was, how do you manage suffering uh, of the loss? And are there lessons to be learned from losing? And I thought this was a bit of a sheepish question. You know, you you generally want to be with a winner and motivational speak and so on. And Dave was absolutely superb. And he came in with the first sentence that really grabbed me. He goes, you've got to have a good culture. I said, well, I like this sort of approach, a culture. Now, the obviously, follow-up is how do you create a good culture and what defines a good culture? And he had the answers, what is it and how do you build it? And he said, essentially, it's on relationships. Now, we all know that intuitively that it's a relationship between the coach and the players and the players' relationship with each other. But let's look at that a little bit more closely. In the last 20 years, the very definition of what is a good relationship has changed between coaches and players. An example from my team, those of you who listen know Hawthorne, no, really, Uh, and Alastair Clarkson, who is one of the great legends of modern day um, coaching. So I'm not saying it because I'm biased. Of course not. I'm impartial here. But because of his sheer talent, and what is his talent? First of all, he's won four premierships in the last 10 years, which is three three in a row, which is unusual by any standard. But I'm going to talk about his coaching talent. He apparently has not got a very good voice. I've not heard it, but his players say that, you know, it leaves a little bit to be, to be desired. Yet, what does he do when he celebrates Shane Burgoyne's 300 or 350th game? He composes a serenade 
and plays the guitar and torments him, the celebrated player, and his whole team with his voice by serenading. Now, you would think this is a turn-off, and maybe it is, but I don't know. There, there may be a streak of masochism or sadism going through that team. But this is the sort of bonding and relationship where you go outside of the safety comfort zone and even what's expected you know so so in terms of change of of how coaching styles you mentioned in the last 20 years is different this would be one example one example luke beveridge uh the last two premiership teams in fact both richmond hardwick and beveridge uh, footscray they're also regarded less as coaches than a brotherhoodly love now this is the language that's being used both in the media and the players that I've got sort of a mateship relationship with my coach. Now, 20, 30 years ago, you would never have thought of uh, talking about your coach as your mate. He'd probably clobber you or or I don't know what he'd do. But this is the illustration of the change of culture. And how does changing culture to more mateship as opposed to authoritarian coaching Ah. then soften the blow of losing? Yes. Now, this is where Dave comes in with his scientific and psychological know-how simple thing he said but it stuck in my mind brilliant sentence he goes you have a structure in place for winning and the same way you have a structure in place for losing this is for the day after with the day after clearly the gut-wrenching awfulness overrides everything and he said the important thing is not to focus on the last sentence or the last paragraph remember the whole book that is the whole season And that's part of the coaching culture to put things into perspective and, he added, and allow tears to flow if they need to. Now, 20 years ago, stiff upper lip, you know, well, we'll do better next year, motivate them, learn from the pain in your gut. No, if there are tears, let them flow. Now, that's a totally different culture in one sentence, I'm saying it, but it takes five to ten years for the whole football culture that seeps through the players, the coaches, the managers, and indeed the viewing audience, which now almost expects emotional display, not just the coaches' box who bash the walls in with their fists and and hide their mouth while they're swearing and saying unnice things to their players, but also to allow the emotion to come to the surface. Now, the question is, what is the outcome that all every player seeks? It's clearly to win. Out of the whole league, one out of the whole league, one team wins. Therefore, all the others could be seen as losers unless you learn lessons from it. So what are the lessons? And this is really the, the crunch. The lessons in losing are not just in sport. This is in life. Some people, unfortunately, see life as a competition, which is a a poor model. Rather, sports should be seen as part of life. And how you handle winning and losing in life determines in a great way how you handle winning or losing in your sports club. So Dave actually said one of the key ingredients for sports, for especially youth under 18s, is the parents' responsibility of which coach do they pick because the coach and the leadership establishes the culture. Now, if that coach is a win-at-all-cost and if you lose, you know, forget it, 
that's not going to l- allow the players to learn lessons either for next year because they'll be driven by fear, fear of losing, not a wish for victory. And fear is always a more inhibitory impulse because we really run away in fear or fight. We don't actually enjoy. We don't have pleasure. We don't really seek the thrill of victory. It's really the fear of loss. Now, if you turn that around, and many of the players in before the game starts now have a good joke with each other, pat each other on the back, rather than this rallying cry of, you know, let's go into battle. Of course, white fever, when you cross the line, is a well-known phenomenon. And brotherly love, really, if you watch the match, it goes out the way the way players crunch into each other and the... I mean, it's a gladiator's arena. Let's let's be blunt about it. People want blood. But that's while you're on the court or on the field. So the cultural difference is how do you change the culture off the field after the loss? And the message from Dave, which I really sympathise with, is to open up this inner self, which is there in all of us, but really squashed by the fear of losing, Remove that fear, not passively, but actively by changing the culture and allow that inner enthusiasm to win the game. And that is really how the last two or three years of premierships have gone. It hasn't been on the best team for the year. It's been the one that flowed and enjoyed the game on the day. And that's how it happened yesterday as well. And that's the lesson for life from losing. So, so if we extend from the grand final to, uh, I think many people listening might be f- thinking with children, for instance, because losing is one of the great lessons that kids have to learn at some point. And I can see the coaching analogy perhaps in the parenting style and culture that's there. Um, but do you or, or did Dave have anything to say about how, um, if we take it away from elite sports and, and back into the, the family home and smaller children, how we help kids learn to learn? Oh, this is where Dave and I just took off because, of course, that led into my clinical experience in child therapy and child psychiatry and all the tools, and Dave reinforced it, which is why I'm now great buddies with Dave. He said all the tools we, and he also is a clinician, are, of course, what are at the base of good parenting and good coaching. It's just that the clinical skills and tools are in the extreme when all the other options and skill sets have failed. So we treat a very specific band of the population. But indeed, the basic principles, you build trust. You build understanding through talking and communicating meaningfully. You don't tell what to do. You can upskill skill sets, but you can't train a personality. And we've all got our innate qualities. And so it's the coaches or parents or therapists' responsibility to understand that personality and how to shape the best, to bring out the best in each individual. And that's the common thread in parenting, coaching or um, 
clinical therapy. When, when my kids were little, um, one of the ways I tried to teach them about losing was through board games. I, I was a huge fan of board games with the kids because they, you win and you lose with the board game. And I remember with my youngest, uh, when she finally got the hang of Monopoly and so I played it properly and she lost and she burst into tears oh. and was so upset. And, and, I, and I said to her, um, if you want to play these sorts of games with people, you have to learn to lose. And if you're going to burst into tears every time, no one will want to play with you. So losing is something that's part of this kind of a game. Now, and so we played again and again, and gradually <coughs> she learnt not to burst into tears and became a good loser. Now, could I ask a personal question here? Did you ever think of or actually pretend to lose yourself or actually do it for her sake so in the lead up to this when we were learning the game winning and losing wasn't the huge part of it so in that part while we were learning the rules it was different rules but once we learned to play i said to her now if you want to beat me you've got to win so you really let it be known that from now on there's no leeway there was no no nice mum and daddy helping you out there Well, I think in that context, if it's again, it, it comes back to the lovingness that you don't say you've got to learn to lose, but you put it into the context that what was it that made you perhaps win and then do a bit of a debrief. And that's where the lessons come in, not obviously in the raw moment, that that would be cruel and, and a waste of time, but in the days after. And this is what great parenting and great coaching is all about, that you return to the experience. You don't cut it off as if it's unspeakable and unknowable. You actually intentionally set out to learn from it. And there are mistakes. We're human. So let's learn about it. It seems to me that you've got two contradictory messages here because, Malice, before you were saying that at the end when you're losing, you should let the tears flow. And then, Dr Nick, you're saying that, you know, with with your poor daughter there, that that she should stop bursting into tears every time she lost a game. So so what's the message? Is it it different for children versus elite athletes? What what message are we actually sending here? I'm turfing that one straight back to Dr Malice. (laughs) First of all, I think that's a fantastic perception to pick up the contradictory message we're giving we in the last five minutes we have actually given a contradictory message and that's the first step is to recognize it that there are two ways to approach it and no one way is necessarily the right way for every person all the time so i can't talk about a personal relationship without knowing the relationship And clearly, a coach or a parent will know which child to encourage the tears with because that's what that personality needs to make the lesson learnable. The other one, perhaps, has always got crocodile tears. That would be a waste of time. I mean, crocodiles, we did a segment, uh, I think, about a month ago. Crocodile tears, crocodiles have no feelings. They're not actually crying from distress. It's a manipulative or not necessarily consciously bad manipulation, but it's a pattern. So you've got to know your child or the player or the patient. And the role and the responsibility of the therapist or the parent is to know who you're in relationship with. It's not a rule. Their guidelines for learning lessons. Three. Triple. Ah. 
We were just talking. Uh, Dr. Malice, there was a lovely little summary of the difference between losing at a board game and losing in the grand final and how we deal with it. What are the lessons? Well, the lessons actually, modestly from Kent, who didn't really wish to... uh, uh, follow up on air, very, but in his name uh, this is our very erudite panelist who's hiding without a microphone but, but contributing great intellect to the an incredible content. insight uh, and really worthy of a follow-up of a lesson that we learned here in the last five minutes from the lesson was the different objectives in the two games the board game and the football game and those different objectives are the objective obviously in the board game is to have a relationship to have another board game yes father and daughter i mean what a, what a brilliant objective to maintain the relationship in a reasonable manner as opposed to having tantrums and everyone falls out and it's you know like i'll never play with you again and that's the beginning of a seeds of who knows what estrangement on the other hand in the football uh, finals it's not that you want to be great mates with your opposition you don't want to have beers with them necessarily you may want to but that's not the objective is to win next year's premiership and so the lessons and the objectives and how you go about learning it also comes back to influence how you shape the moments of the lesson learned the morning after beautiful summary dr manless thank you very much which is a perfect segue as the blokes talk to misdiagnosis (laughs) um misdiagnosis you've been having a bit of a think about uh, particularly about the brett kavanaugh debacle over in the usa and some reflections on that tell us what you're thinking well, it's, it's winning and losing in a different arena, isn't it? I mean, this is a Supreme Court justice nomination. I, I thought I, I might just briefly go through what's actually happening and, and why we should care about it. Sure. Uh, just because even, you know, you can you hear some of the of the trials that are going on and you're listening to the information and getting bits and pieces, but to kind of get the, the background and a bit of the broader context I think is quite important. Um, so essentially what's happening with Brett Kavanaugh at the moment is he's been nominated for a seat in the Supreme Court. And this has occurred because someone has stepped down and these nominations are for a lifelong appointment, a lifelong position. And that's kind of what makes this really important because, you know, what, what's going on at the moment with, with these hearings is trying to establish his character and whether he's fit to hold a lifelong position um, in Supreme Court. It's also important because currently in the Supreme Court in the US, there are four liberal-leaning Supreme Court justices and four conservatives. So this appointment really is a bit of a swing vote. Whatever his political leaning is, this will often, you know, decide decisions at the end of the day because he will have the ability to kind of tip the scales with that. And that's kind of the background as to why this is so important. So he's been nominated by Trump for this position because the president gets to nominate someone when there's a position vacant. And then it's up to the Senate to hold these hearings, decide whether they want to appoint him to this position. Um, and then what we're hearing at the moment in, in these hearings uh, are from women and these claims of uh, sexual harassment and sexual assault. And it's really looking at his character. Is his character what they want for the Supreme Court justice in the US? So it's, it's a, there's a lot of stuff going on with this. There's a lot of background material. I think especially being in Australia, you know, this isn't how our political system works necessarily. So, you know, it can feel a bit kind of estranged. But... You know, really, it is, it's actually quite a good tangent on from the grand final because it is winning and losing in a very, very different arena. And, you know, winning in this particular arena will allow him a lifelong position, whereas losing is really a, a massive slur against his character. And one of the vexed issues around these complaints that have been made against him is that they are 
really a long time ago, aren't they? Mm, and yeah. th there does seem to be something enormously political about the fact that complaints from decades past suddenly emerge just in the weeks while someone's being nominated to a very, very senior position. What's your view on that? Well, it's it's incredibly complicated because essentially, you know, these so these, so there have been, so far there have been um, three women that have come forward with allegations. We've had Dr Christine Ford who actually made an anonymous allegation initially and then she was outed for this allegation and, and now is appearing at the hearings themselves. Um, there's Julie Swetnick, Deborah Ramirez, um, and uh, and those are the other two women that have made allegations against him. It, it is it's really difficult. I mean, with Dr. Ford coming forward with her allegations, the reason she said that she decided to come forward now is she felt that the American public deserved to know what his character was like because he was being appointed to a lifelong position in the Supreme Court. You know, there are many reasons why women don't disclose allegations of sexual harassment, sexual assault. And it's partly because if you look at the history of what happens to women when they do disclose this, it's pretty shocking. It can be re-traumatising. It can have, in a way, sometimes no tangible outcome for the woman herself. So coming forward with these kind of allegations, it takes a lot of courage and it takes you know, a lot of support behind her as well. And I, I think it, it really is important to know that she came forward with these allegations anonymously. She wasn't trying to name herself and, you know, sort of in a way in inverted commas, and I, I hate this phrase, when, especially when it comes to women, but, you know, she wasn't trying to make a scene. She was, you know, she was trying to give the American public the information with which she hoped they could then, the Senate would then make a decision based on that. And one of the things seems to me important is that however we deal with allegations of sexual assault in this Me Too movement era, we have to remember that what we're talking about, she alleges as having happened, happened when back in the 1980s? 1982. 1982. And if you ask the question, well, why didn't she go public? Why didn't she make a complaint then? I have no idea what the response was to a young woman in 1982 in America claiming that someone had assaulted her. But I imagine it wasn't quite what the response might be now. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, you know, th there are, as I said, there are lots of reasons why women don't come forward with this. And especially, you know, in the 80s, I would be very sceptical of whether she would have been believed or taken seriously. And, you know, what implications, she's a clinical psychologist, what implications this would have had for her career progression? Just to add another layer to the complexity which you've mentioned is very complex. I, I belong to a listserv which includes American therapists. And this is, issue is dividing the listserv and puts the listserv moderator into a very difficult position of which comments to allow and which comments not to allow. So the, the lesson from that personal experience or professional experience with the American scene is that what gets into the media is already a moderated information so we're debating quite clearly the information that's in the Senate hearing and it's on television and it's extremely emotional and raw and moving. And just like, and I don't want to draw the analogy too far, but winning and losing raises the deepest emotions. In the heat of the emotions, rationality cannot rule. This is why we have a court system. The due process is to allow rationality to marry up with raw emotions over the course of time. So my take at the moment is that we should not be passing judgments necessarily, but as you are providing the 
background, the context and the complexity that in due course justice will be hopefully served. The reason I raise this is because there's always two sides to such a claim. Now, I don't know and I'm not taking a position, but equally there are two possible innocent people and two possible guilty parties or alleged innocent, alleged guilty. And it is the process of legal consideration, not public opinion, that should sway something so important as the appointment of a Supreme Court judge, especially in this critical role of the swinging fifth vote. So I think the danger here is that public opinion, which is a fickle barometer, we only have to go back to Australia, the Lindy Chamberlain case. That was run on from the late 80s, I think, I've forgotten the exact date, but really that was run on public opinion. And the evidence turned up many years after she had spent in prison, the vilification she received, the character assassination, a lesser person might have actually committed suicide under the pressure of alleging that you murdered your own baby uh, rather than a dingo, which finally she was acquitted on a, a retrial. Now, here a judge is actually being judged by public opinion. So all I would say at this stage is to please exercise some caution in what is an impossible, heated, passionate debate, lest at a miscarriage of justice of the highest order, and I don't wish to say Lindy Chamberlain wasn't the highest order, she was a mother, she was a wife, she was a woman, and she was vilified for daring to say what she actually experienced. If we, if we take it away from the American system and talk about this sort of sexual assault allegation in a more general sense, because, of course, this is something which is, has been a huge issue in the medical community um, and medical students and young doctors have had to deal with this. One of the things that always comes up is, oh, you know, is she just making it up? Is this some sort of vexatious claim? Uh, and we must have some data on that. I mean, how common is it that women make up allegations of sexual assault? What a fantastic question. It's almost as if we spoke before the show about this. Um, <laughs> so some of the statistics on allegations and false allegations, um, essentially what they've found is that roughly 4% of allegations of sexual assault or sexual harassment are false allegations and other studies indicate roughly between 2 to 6% and this is this is kind of in a bit of a european context in the uk as well the only thing that that kind of confounds these figures is we've got so we've got a figure somewhere between 4 to 6% so it might maybe it's maybe it's 2% maybe it's 4% maybe it's 6% what is what the main issue with these statistics is that they come from looking at um, police data where an allegation of sexual harassment or sexual assault has been filed and no crime has been found. So essentially what these statistics, which are so small anyway, indicate is that sometimes in four to six percent of cases, no crime can be found. That just means no crime has been proved with it. So be really clear about that. A small percentage uh, is quoted as false allegation, but even amongst that small percentage, many of those 
might be true allegations they just have been failed to be proven and some of them are true allegations that have failed to be proven which obviously you you can't say it's a true allegation if it's failed to be proven but some of them are also allegations that have been made and then they've said i don't want to pursue this as a claim itself in which case no crime can be found with it so sometimes it's people reporting that something's happened but then not following through with it so the statistics themselves they're, they're really hard to interpret but essentially what we know is it's very very minor there's a very small number you're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 R in Melbourne, Australia. But that takes us to a different area. I mean, we've said that most sexual assault allegations are in fact real and true allegations, but how often does this occur to women? It's a really interesting question. Of course, you know, we, we're relying on data where either people have asked sort of groups of women and extrapolated or we're relying on um, reports from women and we know that it's grossly, grossly underreported cases of sexual assault, sexual harassment. If we look at the Australian figures, it's 71% of women in Australia have been sexually assaulted or harassed at some stage. So say that again. 71% of women have been sexually assaulted or sexually harassed. And this is self-report or where does that data this come is, from? This is self-reported data yeah wow if we look at how many women have been um sexually assaulted or sexually harassed in the last 12 months it's roughly globally a quarter of women so we're looking at you know a, a quarter of the women sort of walking around you every day within their last 12 months will have been sexually assaulted and sexually harassed. And, and, and does that include the sort of old-fashioned quick pat on the bottom and as, as opposed to more serious physical assault? What, what do we mean by assault and harassment here? It's a, that's a really good question as well. It does depend on which of the studies that you're looking at. Um, I mean, we know that you know, women experience all sorts of, sort of sexual assault on an everyday or sort of sexual harassment on an everyday level. And uh, I, I don't actually know what data was used in these particular studies and what the women were reporting. But from my own personal experience, I would be sceptical if women were reporting things that were, uh, you know, relatively commonplace or relatively minor. Because to report something like this is actually a really big deal, both emotionally and just to speak out. You know, you can face can face all sorts of backlash, as we saw with um, Dr. Ford. Uh, you know, she made an anonymous allegation and yet she's been sort of dragged into the public sphere. She's had death threats. She's had to relocate her family and move house because of these allegations. So I don't think when women are reporting these things, they're reporting minor incidents. So, yes, what is this with anonymous allegations? So it happened with Barnaby Joyce's alleged mm-hmm. assault over in WA. It happened with Geoffrey Rush. These uh, women going saying, I don't want this going publish, I don't, public. I don't want my name on this, but someone needs to know this happened. Uh, and then getting revealed, that that seems like yet another form of assault, another form of abuse. Well, it, it's a failing on behalf of our, our sort of government systems that we aren't able to protect women or protect anyone coming forward with these kind of allegations. And it also means that people are much less likely to report when things are a little bit more borderline or a little bit more minor. Because if you look at what happens to these women, you get dragged into the public sphere and it's, it's just, it's intolerable. Isn't that awful that in 2018 and the era of the media, Two movement we're still saying statements like that you've been listening to a podcast from australia's best known community radio station three triple r 102.7 in melbourne for more podcasts information about upcoming events and our live stream please visit our website at rrr.org.au